world is in a climate crisis and young people are the ones who will bear the brunt of its outcomes. So what can physics offer to solve some of the problems? Hello, I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer and researcher, and I'm delighted to be bringing you this third series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In our last series, I spoke to physicists, economists, and policymakers about what we can do to create a green economy for the future. But in this new series, I'm asking what physics can do in the here and now to stop climate change progressing at its current rate. Across the coming episodes, I'll be joined by leading physicists and engineers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing. We'll be talking about how physics can be applied to identify problems, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping find solutions. In this episode, we'll be focusing on water. Water is often at the forefront of conversations about the climate, whether it's because there's too much of it, rising levels causing flooding, or too little, with towns and cities becoming scarily close to running out of clean drinking water. Water is a visible effect of a shift in our climate. I'm joined for this conversation by two people whose expertise is in keeping water in the right places and in the right conditions. You might remember Professor Kevin McGuigan from the first series of Looking Glass. He is a physicist who's an expert in solar disinfection and is the director of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland's Solar Disinfection Research Group, which develops appropriate solar-based technologies for water treatment in resource-poor rural environments. Dr Anna Meach is a reader in Water Systems Integration and director of the Centre for Systems Engineering and Innovation at Imperial College London. She is one of the UK's leading voices in water systems, specialising in research around the impacts and risks of the climate crisis on water, infrastructure adaptation and resilience measures. Water is something that's used in so many different ways. We've consciously opened this four-part element series with it because it has such an impact on everything else. Anna, maybe we could start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how what we do with water impacts the world around us? In the most simple way, we can think about it in three ways. So we use water for supply. Water is an essential resource. We cannot survive too long without water. Um, we uh, need to protect from the water. So uh, not enough water is not good, but too much water is not good as well. So we need to protect ourselves from flooding. And the last aspect, which is becoming very, very important, um, uh, is issue around the water quality, which uh, in some ways integrates lots of things and impacts coming from the surface of our development decisions and how they propagate and cause different issues with the water quality in our rivers and groundwater. Kevin, I'd love to turn to you. Um, Anna obviously mentioned water quality there. And as we know, you know, the lack of access to clean and safe drinking water has become a huge problem in many parts of the world. I wonder if you could start us off by just outlining some of the main reasons for why this is happening in the first place and and where climate change comes into uh, into this question. It's a simple question with a very complicated answer, to be honest, because there's so many factors involved. Um, There's what? There's something like 8 billion people on on the planet and and 2 billion of those don't have access to to safe drinking water. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, They they may be beyond the the distribution point for, for managed supplies. They could be out in rural areas. 
And if they're in rural areas, well, then they're relying on whatever water is usually available. And climate change is impacting that hugely from the perspective of irregular rain patterns, uh, uh, extended droughts. This impacts them not only on their access to water, but then also on their access to, to, to food. If they're subsistence farmers, they're desperately relying on, on the on the rains, if they're pastoral nomads, then their, their, their livestock will rely on whatever grazing they can find, and that gets scarcer and scarcer. Uh, so um, climate change, or the climate crisis, has had a huge impact on the availability of water around the world. And I wonder if you could add to this. I mean, obviously, you do a lot of work in, in the global south in India and elsewhere. I mean, give us a bit more about what the scale of this of this challenge looks like and maybe some some examples i think what is really important to mention what kevin was saying is that there could be and there are a plentiful of reasons why we have the issue with the safe you know drinking water and the biggest challenge from my perspective is that we are still not completely sure how all of those impacts interact and the combination of the impacts is actually the most critical part because from the management perspective, uh, why that is a challenge is, for example, if the problem with the water quality is um, due to, say, an overuse of the fertilizers, which is a very common problem, then um, that could cause um, uh, excess of nutrients in the, in the water, so we need to manage that. So we try to deal then with the, with the fertilizers, but at the same time, river also receives any discharge from, um, say, wastewater and wastewater treatment plant or sampling tanks, so we need to deal with that as well. And all of that happens at the very large spatial scale. So we can we manage all the farms that produce the impact? Can we manage all the wastewater treatment plants? What about any other changes in the um, upstream uh, land use? Uh, so any urbanization, any industrial um, waste, uh, all of that eventually comes in into the river um, with a different um, through different pathways and and uh, uh, different timescales. So understanding, and again, we can't manage, I mean, we can try to manage everything, but it's really difficult. So the challenge is not only uh, in India, I think it's a really global challenge around the water pollution because we want to keep developing. Um, we need more land, we need more development, but all development, uh, our most development, the way how it's currently designed and how we approach it from the agriculture system, urban system, industrial systems, it's really, really heavy on producing the waste, all the different types of pollutants. And um, we have traditional pollutants, we have emerging pollutants. Uh, so the issue around water quality, I think, if anything, um, we, we are very good in dealing with the amounts of water. So finding additional supply, managing flooding. I think the 21st century is the challenge around water quality. Just to follow on from that, the climate crisis isn't the only cause of the problem. The things that Anna described there, the industrialization, they're not static situations. Industrialization is increasing, the population is increasing, all making bigger demands on the same amount of available water. We've, everybody's using the, the, uh, the, the fresh water, 
And that's only 2.5% of all the water on the, on the planet. Everything else is saline and not particularly of use to us. I guess what seems to be linking all of your answers so far is, is this word complexity. It seems like there's just so many different factors, not only that you have to understand, but then influence each other. And so you then need to understand um, that sort of extra layer of how things work. And I wonder then, you know, this being a, a podcast from the Institute of Physics, what the role of physicist is here? Because it sounds um, like an engineering problem or a politics problem or environmental agency problem. And of course, it's all of those and above. But I wonder if you could give us a context of where, where physics and, and specifically yourselves as physicists come into this. Um, Anna, we'll start with you. I think it's the understanding of the physical systems and that's maybe where the kind of f physics comes in because civil engineering is applied mathematics and physics and mechanics um, where the understanding of the physical behavior of the system is crucial because um, the system behaves and when I say the system the natural system behaves in a certain way so we, ha we have the water cycle we know the processes we know how the water naturally moves through the environment uh, how climate is influencing precipitation, how there is interaction between the land use and, and the atmospheric processes, how the water moves over the surface and the subsurface. So this is where the physics is crucial. And that's the basis from everything we do. Again, the management and the human part comes on top of that. Okay, so, so uh, our decisions are based on two things. It, they're based on those processes. So we understand them and then we manipulate them. So climate change is the consequence of us manipulating the nature fundamentally. Um, and then our needs. So we redesign the nature uh, and those, we, we change, not the, I mean, we sometimes change the processes, isn't it? To, to suit our needs. And the needs are for, you know, more water, basically using water for, for, for different purposes. Um, what is the challenge is that the way how we design and operate and govern our systems is not necessarily completely aligned with the physics of the system. And I, I think we've seen that, I mean, climate change is again, the obvious uh, response from the environment. Um, um, to our to our behavior and, and and our our decisions, we are very successful ignoring <laughs> that. I think um, how much we'll be able to go uh, ahead with that it, it's a, it's a really big question. Uh, but I think we are very careless um, in um, understanding that the physics of the system will fundamentally determine the behavior of the system. Kev, I'm going to bring you in then. This this point around, um, you know, Anna saying we're we're careless um, to some degree about about really making sure that we understand the the impact of physics and taking that into account. I wonder if you could build on that from your perspective. Well, well that's the the area that I see physicists having the most important role is managing the situation that is unfolding and and hopefully remediating the problem. Uh, the the big issue seems to be. The dwindling resources, but we, we end up with a large amount of contaminated drinking water. And I think there's a huge role for physicists in developing new technologies for uh, recovering usable water from that wastewater, either in the form of grey water for, for, uh, for agricultural purposes or perhaps retrieving 
nutrients and minerals from the wastewater that then have a value of their own. So you, you're generating some kind of a green economy from it. My particular interest is in treating the contaminated water for the purposes of, of drinking uh, at household level. So I, I think physicists are particularly well positioned here uh, because a lot of the problems surround removal of quite complicated chemical contaminants from the various water sources and water bodies. And particularly in the area of semiconductor physics, there's a lot of work being done in that area now around photocatalysis for breaking down the various contaminants of emerging concern, mineralizing this, hopefully. Although whether you'll ever get complete mineralization is, is a, a, a bit of a unicorn, but you, you can certainly make the water better using these photooxidative processes. It sounds like, you know, on one hand, um, you know, there are solutions. I mean, um, you know, you can use the sunshine to use for solar disinfection, for instance. So it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive or complicated, but at the same time you're saying there's this sort of unicorn issue that hasn't been solved. So what would you say is the, um, not to oversimplify it, because again, complexity, we've mentioned this, but what's the sort of, what is the challenge when it comes to physicists and what they're doing in this space? You know, what's everyone talking about? I wonder if you could explain it for those of us who, who are not either physicists specifically in that space or physicists at all. Well, well, if, if you look at the, the various treatments that are available for producing potable water. You've got chlorination, which is a chemical process. You've got filtration, uh, and then you might have re reverse osmosis or distillation. They're all procedures that in some form or another require a, a basic physical input into that. Uh, you need to develop the, the, the aspects to make them more efficient, to have larger volumes. The whole thing driving this is, is the search for cheap energy. You, you can you can provide desalinated drinking water to a large, uh, to a large population if you've got sufficient energy to, to, to drive that process. So everybody's looking for sustainable energy uh, sources. So, so that's one aspect, again, where physicists can have a role. But when you, if we set the energy problem to one side and look at the particular types of uh, areas that might hold the, the key for future research for, for physicists, well, then we would be thinking particularly around advanced oxidative processes uh, driven by maybe photocatalysis. So using solar energy to break down the various contaminants in the water. Now, the problem there is most of the photocatalysts, they require quite high energy UV, or ultraviolet light, so now the whole thrust of, of that research effort is in producing visibly active photocatalysts. Anna, do you want to add anything in this, in this point as well? I'd love to hear particularly how it kind of goes from physics to engineering and how you start thinking about, okay, we can look at this theory or we can look at these experiments that have allowed us to do this, but how do we actually build that in practice for you know, a cost that is uh, acceptable to, to those in power? My work is primarily on modeling. Uh, so we are developing simulation models to represent the physical behavior of the water systems. Um, so that's where the, what I mentioned, the physics come in. The models that we have been developing over the last couple of years are unique in a sense 
that they are based on the physical processes. So we are representing the movement of the water, but also pollutants to the environment based on the, on the physical laws. Um, but then we uh, are adding the human elements. So the decisions, the behavior, the policies, and what that enables us is to uh, simulate what if scenarios, uh, how the system changes under different drivers. So how the system behaves under climate change, under different um, development uh, decisions, under different with different interventions implemented in the system, what's the best way to move water around, what are the implications of development on water quality and so on. What is also maybe important to mention at this stage um, is that technology has a really big role, what Kevin was mentioning. So, so we have to rely on the technological solutions for lots of our problems. The challenge is that lots of technological solutions are very intensive with the energy and chemicals. So we are in somewhat catch-22 issue. Alternatives, and when we are working a lot in different forms, what is called the nature-based solution. So using the physical processes of the different green infrastructure systems to give us additional capacity, which is equivalent to the infrastructure systems. It's very challenging because infrastructure is designed to perform very efficiently, but we need to we need to think about that. And then maybe the final thing to mention around the physics is to um, bear in mind that when we are making water management decisions, we are primarily thinking about people and our our needs. However, um, what is also becoming very important and um, uh, things that um, are uh, becoming uh, at the forefront of the decision making is also thinking about not only about the people but also about the ecology and the species in the environment. People uh, or some people have started realizing the value of the nature, the value of the green spaces, the value of different species in the environment, and then the link between the water quality, the safe water for drinking, but then also the safe water for the species and biodiversity that actually exists in the in the rivers is another challenge that again increases that complexity that we talked about. Could you tell us about an on-the-ground example where that complexity with human impact and behavior interacts with other factors? Maybe I can give um, an example from, from our work in India. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, I have been working in India. I have been working in India for since maybe 2012 um, on the water management in the Ganges Basin, so in the northern India. And uh, um, one problem is around understanding the interactions and the water use in the Gandak Basin, which is the basin between the Patna and the Nepal border. It, it's a very small river, which is the tributary of the Ganges, but the system hydrologically, physically, and from the management perspective is really interesting. So the system has the upstream um, barrage, that there is a dam, there's a water coming from the, from the Nepal side. That barrage has certain rules of operation. So the barrage lets certain amount of water uh, into the main Gandak River, and then a uh, certain amount of water in the nearby canals, which farmers use for the irrigation. Um, farmers, in addition to using the water from those canals, also have the local uh, boreholes. But then, uh, hydrologically, the system is connected. So the groundwater uh, is uh, interacting with the surface water and contributing to the part of the flow in the Gandak River. 
At the same time, Gandak is a river which is the home for um, a very, very rare species of garrier crocodiles. So from the management perspective, um, farmers typically care just about their yield. So they will be maximizing the use of water from the canals and from the groundwater. And what might happen is that more water is directed into canals than left in the Gandak. And also with the groundwater obstructions, we are reducing the amount of water in the river. And all that has consequences for the breeding of the crocodiles. And this is just a quantity problem. There would be, of course, then the implications for the water quality as well, because the less water you have in the river, the less dilution capacity. So if you have the same amount of pollutants coming into the river, which has the low, lower flow, the pollution will be higher. So this is, this is a typical illustration of a very complex problem where you can do lots of measurements and you can measure different components, but how they work together, how they interact, how they will change. For example, if you change the operation of the barrage, for that you would really need uh, a modeling approach. And especially then if you want to predict how the system might change uh, under different scenarios or, or in the future. So something that you said earlier that was interesting, Anna, was was the the role of physics in providing evidence. Um, so you know, there's understanding, of course, and and Kevin, you've also mentioned a lot of uh, specific kind of um, solutions or or ideas for solutions and so on and so forth. But this idea of providing evidence for decision making is quite interesting, and of course, that takes us to talking a little bit about policy and and what it means to take action. Um, so Kevin, I wonder if you could you could start. You're, you're chuckling there. I can see you. I wonder. If you could start. I know this is a really. I've given you the difficult uh, questions here. It's a difficult uh, question, but what needs to change? What you know? I know that there's lots of things that need to change, but give us a bit of an overview of what you would love to see at a policy level that enables physicists, engineers, environmentalists, people um, to have better, more, cleaner water. Well, I suppose it depends on which policy you're talking about and where that policy is enacted. I've worked a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, in Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Malawi. And my feeling there is most of the countries have a very good approach towards water governance. They, they recognize that it is an issue and they want to do something about it. The big problem there is funding and infrastructure. In my projects, I always make sure that I partner up with a sociologist because the sociologists are the people who, who, who deal in policy uh, and they're the ones who can write policy briefs in, in their sleep. If you were relying on me to write a policy brief, we'd all be in, in big, big trouble. <laughs> so um, from that perspective, we always have sociologists from those countries who are particularly sensitive and familiar with what can and cannot be achieved there. If we're talking about policy change elsewhere, well, then you've got to start prioritizing research funding for the sustainable development goals, which are going to lift everybody up, uh, all the global citizens. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the, if we talk in terms of the North-South divide, which I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of that term, but um, there's, there doesn't seem to be a, a, an acceptable term used any, anywhere. But if, if we stick with that one, the higher income countries have a responsibility for remediating the problems that have been caused in the poorest countries by virtue of their industrial activity. And I'm not so sure that they are as committed to that as they say they are. Uh, 
I, I'm a big fan of the European Union. I don't want to get all political on, on us now, but they have a very, uh, a very structured approach to research, funding research in the Sustainable Development Goals. So as, as a physicist based in the, in the Republic of Ireland, I can access that. Um, I know some, some research physicists in the United Kingdom can do that, but a, a, an obvious policy change would be some kind of certainty going forward because at the moment there there are restrictions about uh, or uncertainties about how uk-based researchers can become involved in those large-scale kind of, of of projects within the european union bringing you in on this point around policy anna i mean again going back to this point about evidence um you know how do you can convince policymakers to take action right because um, you know, it's one thing to say, look, we've got the science tells us this. And I think as we've all seen, particularly during the pandemic, um, that's not, not always enough to convince various different kinds of governments for various different reasons, as Kevin's um, outlined here. And obviously the sociologists, that's, that's their job to look into why governments uh, do and don't take action. But from your perspective, what does it mean to convince? How do you um, persuade um, taking action off the back of your work? If you think about the complexity, then uh, you can also think about the systems approaches or systems thinking as a solution. So systems approaches to thinking means that you are trying to understand the interactions and a system as a whole and try to find the best places to intervene. And we call that leverage points. If from the systems perspective, policy is a really high leverage point because policy can make lots of different components in the system change if something becomes a requirement. So if we would be required to use less water, it will have the implication for all the elements of the water system. Of course, politically, that's a very difficult decision because no one wants to impose restrictions on the water use because that wouldn't be popular choice. But um, from the physics and the physical perspective, this is a very simple intervention, okay? Simple technically, very difficult to implement. The Environment Agency, for example, in the UK is also saying, well, there isn't that much around the policies. It's much more, not that we don't have the policies, it's how we implement those policies. And what Kevin mentioned, what is the funding available for implementing the policies? So that's one part of the story. The other one is the example you mentioned around COVID. And I think this is a really interesting example where actually science was used in two ways. It was actually used to inform some of the decisions. And um, if you remember at the very beginning, Professor Neil Ferguson from Imperial was very uh, famous because uh, government has used his model to predict the level of levels of infection and to impose different restrictions. So when the situation gets extreme, they do go back to the science, ask for the evidence, uh, and then use that evidence for emergency measures. They, they are not, they, that's not the perfect evidence, but I'm sure it did help us to have a bit more informative decision. What normally happens in, in non-emergency situation is, I think, quite dif different. Um, and uh, I think there is a really role of science and the evidence to try to persuade decision makers that a bit more quantitative evidence needs to be used, especially on the decisions around the, the future planning. Um, we have talked about the complexity, but in from the water management perspective, there's really a range of things that 
could be done, but again, they will also interact with each other. So we can change the behavior, we can change the development decisions. Mm. We have the technologies, for example, for the, something like uh, rainwater harvesting, for the gray water recycling. These technologies exist for many, many, many years now, but they are not implemented at, at, at a large at a large scale. And then when we make decisions around future, so big big planning, big developments, that's where the role, I think, of the government is, the, the, the national government, but also the local government. They need to set the targets much more ambitiously. We, we have done the work and we are working on the concept of water neutrality, which means that if we know what the pressures will be, we need to ensure that our development decisions at least need to offset that additional pressure. The systems may be really bad, so you need to do even more. But it's it's the role of policy and the government and the regulation to set those targets in the energy systems. We now have this net zero concept. We don't have anything like that for the water systems. And I I, I really am not sure why. And, and we are very much pushing for, for that agenda around um, some form of water neutrality. Just to follow on from what Anna was saying, she, she raised the point uh, about not only is policy change required, but you also need behavior change. And, and that's so true. Uh, we had a, a, a wonderfully bad example here in the Republic of Ireland where the government decided to install water meters to every household just so that they could see how much water they were using, but with the ultimate intention of charging the users for the water that they use. From my perspective, as someone who's seen the problems of, of access to safe water, that makes complete sense. But politically, it was such a hot potato, it almost led to a civil war. I've, I've never seen such, such political activism uh, involved in it. So people recognize the value of access to safe water, but they're not prepared to pay for it. And their view would be Ireland is known as the Ed Emerald Island because it's green, because it rains all the time. Why should we pay for something that is that is everywhere? But that's just not the case. So so policy change is important, but also behavior change, recognition that water is a resource that has to be paid for. I wonder if I could turn to the pair of you to as we wrap up. We've talked a lot about the the problems, the challenges. Yes, we've had some optimism in there talking about some of the solutions, but um, I guess predominantly we've been talking about what, what's difficult or what's not happening. And I wonder if we could end going back to this optimism, perhaps um, solutions as well. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an insight into some of your current research or something that's giving you optimism for a better water future. And I will start with you. I, yeah, I really want to end on a positive note. <laughs> so, so um, I think the positive positive note uh, is that I think in the UK the government, when I say government, I mean environment agency. I think they are coming to the realization that the way how at least the water management in planning decisions have been done so far, they're not really working because lots of investment has been made, but no real change in, say, water quality indicators, which are measured by the Environment Agency, has not been monitored. So, so we, we don't see improvements, uh, especially not as much as, as we should have seen, considering the amount of investments and the projects. Um, and uh, what we have seen in the last couple of years is that openness from the um, different key stakeholders, uh, such as environment agencies, such as local governments, such as water companies, to start uh, facing <laughs> uh, the complexity, to start um, 
asking us to, to do the modeling with them and for them to unreveal whatever the situation is. Uh, and then what that enables us is to then start discussing the issues and things that I mentioned. So to start discussing what the targets might be, to start discussing what the options are, um, and to bring in then other stakeholders, because if we think about the water management, say, in the cities, then, you know, planners and, and developers need to be part of that discussion. If we think about the agricultural sector, then the landowners and, and the farming community need to be part of that discussion. Um, there is a huge opportunity to bring in the business community because the functioning environment could have significant impact for businesses. Um, example I have from the work that I did, did in Cumbria, in, 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 um, for the, we were looking at the issue of the Windermere Lake and the water quality in the lake uh, and the problem there and why everyone became upset about that because they couldn't organize their famous uh, swimming race in the, in, the, in the lake because of the algae bloom. So when the environment uh, fight back <laughs> in some way, um, and uh, people start being um, upset about that either because of the personal issues or because of the businesses, um, then things can start changing. I think there's a cause for optimism, this idea of taking taking heads out the sand and, and starting to face up to the problems as opposed to ignoring them. Kevin, same question to you about some uh, things that are giving you uh, cause for optimism when it comes to better water futures. Well, Gemma, I'm not so sure that an optimistic outlook serves as well here. I, mean, mm. I think we need to be very realistic about Fair the situation enough. we're in. Uh, it, all my research speaks to Sustainable Development Goal 6, that, that the whole global population will have access to safely managed water by 2030. Uh, in the most recent WHO report in, in 2021, it, oh, this, these SDGs started in 2015, and at the rate we're going, we need to increase our efforts by a factor of four in order to, to achieve those goals. So, um, yes, there's certainly a role for physicists in, in working towards this. But really, we need, we need to start becoming more realistic about water management, recognizing the, the, the impacts that increased industrialization is having on our water, uh, our water sources. So from, from my physics research perspective, I absolutely enjoy what I'm doing. And it's, it's great to see that I'm having an impact in, in those research projects. But if I look around at the, the wider horizon, it's, there's really not much to be, to be optimistic about. Well, then, Kevin, Sorry let me rephrase it. Downer there. No, let me rephrase the question then. What is it that gets you out of bed? Is it hope? Is it, is it anger? Is it... Um... Is it any form of optimism? I mean, optimism doesn't necessarily mean being blind to the issues or or or, or thinking that things are really bad. I would say it's it's closer to a hopeful outlook that all is not lost. And I'm curious what it is that then drives you. Okay, well, what drives me is I I, I know that the the work that I'm doing has an impact. Uh, my, my PhD was on semiconductor spectroscopy, so the impact of that was you'll get your text message a quarter of a millisecond faster. But the, the work I do here, we measure it in improvement in infant mortality, you know? So that absolutely gets me out of bed. Uh, that, that's why a lot of the people who are in science go into science. So I, I recognize that individual scientists can't solve all the problems, 
I think the best we can do is pick one problem and try to, 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 to contribute towards it as much as we can. And that's what gets me out of bed. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm just hoping now other scientists and other physicists will, will see the challenge, will see a role that they can play and work towards that. Because, I mean, there are, there are some really important things that need to be done. There's important research that needs to take place to help us get to where we need to be. Kevin, I think that's a lovely note to end on. So thank you for that. Anna, Kevin, thank you both so much for, for joining us and chatting all things water. Some of your optimism, some of your pessimism, but mostly your hope. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Huge thanks to my guests, Professor Kevin McGuigan and Dr. Anna Meach for joining me for this episode. Next time, we'll be moving through the elements to look at Earth, asking how we can maintain a healthy soil to keep the world fed. Make sure you subscribe to Looking Glass wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producers are Fatuma Kera and Rosie Stofer, with editorial guidance from Sarah Stolarz. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The original music is by Alex Port Felix, with mixing by Nassan Da Silva. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan, and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.